0: Did you know that because you looked it up, John, or did you know that off the top of your head? Okay. Well, because you were so quick at it, we're going to give it to you anyway. All right. I want to ask a question. I want you to think about this for a moment. What is a sign? What's a sign? Good. Man, Nick, you came out of the gate swinging there. That's a good one. All right. Anybody want to add anything to that? Something that points to something? Yeah, I thought we'd start really surface. I mean, that's what that's what it is. And then certainly we want to go there where it's, uh, it points to something big. What is a sign in John? Anybody know what a sign in John is trying to do? Well, let's back up with that. Um, what is John trying to do uh, as we read the gospel? What is he trying to get his hearers to do? Anybody remember the purpose statement in John? Yeah, to believe that he's the son of God and believing they might have life in his name. He wants us us to believe. And so um, I wanted to point out some of the signs here in John. There's seven signs in John, okay? Uh, Changing water to wine, uh, chapter 2. The healing of the royal official's son. We didn't deal with each of these because we've been dealing with personal encounters in the book of John. The healing of the lame man at the pool in John 5. The feeding of the 5,000, the only miracle that's in all four Gospels besides the resurrection. Okay, um, Walking on water, John 6. Uh, what do you think that uh, suggests to us about Jesus? Is it just a cool trick or was there a purpose behind it? He's master of the universe. He's master over the elements. He's, he's Lord over nature. And then we have the healing of the blind man in John chapter 9. It's uh, an interesting thing that uh, comes up there. And you remember that uh, blindness was considered one of those almost um, un, like impossible miracles. You know, I mean, all miracles. God's doing, doing something that's impossible. But beyond that, uh, we don't have any place except for the the Syrians or the Arameans in the Old Testament where somebody is healed from blindness, okay? Uh, it's, it seems to be a miracle that's reserved for Jesus. And then we have the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and we're going to look at that tonight, all right? So these are the seven miracles. The last great miracle, and this is the last great miracle in John, and it's a sign that points to Jesus having the power over death, right? He has the power over death, and uh, he has uh, healed the sick, he's given sight to the blind, he's uh, mastered the elements, and now he's going to raise the dead. And uh, this is Jesus, the resurrection, and the life. In him is life. And it goes beyond just eternal life being a thing, he is a person. And what I understand from this passage is that the sun. in the son we have life, without the son we have no life, okay? Uh, a lot of bible scholars think that when john wrote he's writing in the uh probably either the late 80s or early 90s and that he writes john his gospel he writes his uh three letters and he writes revelation all in close proximity to one another and and so uh, there's a similarity in linguistics and style in uh 1 john 5:11 and 12 it says Uh, And this is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this is life in His Son. Whoever has the Son, what? Has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So uh, this is more than just coming to an altar and having an experience, as important as that is, this life is relational, according to John's Gospels, and so uh, we we want to understand that this has to do with trusting in Jesus as the life. And these signs do something else. They uh, besides just draw people to Jesus. What's the other thing the signs tend to do? We see it here. We saw it in chapter 9. Okay, If, if one of the things is to reveal Jesus as the Messiah and draw people to belief, what's the other thing the signs surprisingly do? They turn people away from him. Okay, so remember the prophecy that was given regarding Jesus when he was born is that this child will be the cause of the what rise and the fall of many in Israel, and many's hearts will be many people's hearts will be exposed for what they are. And so, that's the other thing that happens when these signs um, come is that you would think that. It would cause people just to believe. But what we see is that when Christ does a sign or a wonder, it reveals the hearts of many. And many people who thought they were on God's side, they find out that they're not on God's side because they're opposed to what Jesus is trying to do. They fought against him. And so he reveals their hearts were really not for God. And then there were some who seemed to be outsiders to God's way. Uh, can you think of anybody like that in the New Testament, in the Gospels? They look like they're outsiders to God's way, but their response to Jesus is one of belief. Zacchaeus—that's the one that comes to my mind immediately—is that tax collectors are the devil. <laughs> we still, we still feel that way sometimes, but uh, that's how they felt towards him, and for reasons beyond what we have. Um, what are what are some others that you might think of? Samaritan woman what's that Nicodemus okay about the he might be in the one where he thinks he's close to God and I think I think he does come to believe in Jesus um, anybody else how about the thief on the cross not the one the other one remember the other one that uh, says to the the one guy that's pestering Jesus that this is the Son of God, He's innocent, and uh, He says, "Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today, you'll be with me in paradise." And so you you find that there are some surprising people. in Jesus, uh, Jesus, His uh, place in the Gospels is to reveal people's hearts towards God. Salvation is not just academic. Salvation is relational. All right, so I wanted to encourage us tonight that this is not just an academic thing because we can sit back uh, and we can read books and we can read our Bible and we can feel pretty good about ourselves, but the real test is how do we respond to Jesus. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes it's the people who know the Bible the best that actually are standing against him. And it doesn't have to be that way, it's not either or, It's uh, it's just that... For whatever reason, they were, uh, they may be, were promoting their own kingdom. All right, so let's take a look at our passage, and this is a long one, and I think the best approach to this is just to read it. Shall we read it? Uh, Let's go verses 1 through 16. We'll talk about that, and then we're going to jump in from there. All right, somebody like to read verses 1 through 16 out loud? All right, I will. Do Do you want to? Okay, do it. Let's do that. All right, thank you. Let's, uh, let's call this first part News in Perea, all right? News in Perea. And uh, I think the thing that should come up here is this map. All right, so can you see that? All right, this section over here is Perea. And why is Jesus over in that area? It says he went where John the Baptist was baptizing. Why is he over here? Anybody know? Maybe from your reading or your context. What's, hap- what's happening in the gospel of John up to this point? He, le- he left Jerusalem, and there was a reason why he left. If you look back a little bit in chapter 10, you can see what that is. Uh, there's mounting opposition, right? And what's one thing that Jesus says about time um, often in, in the gospels? And I think in John particularly. It's not, my, it's not my time, okay? So he's concerned about the timing of God. He's concerned about that uh, his crucifixion should happen at the proper time. He's got in mind. So as the pressure rises, they, they just tried to stone him. Okay? And we, we got a little bit of that from the context here as we read. Uh, he leaves and he crosses the Jordan River into this area over here. Okay, So as he's uh, there... Uh, He gets news from uh, Bethany that Lazarus, his friend, is sick. And I think that should show Bethany there. Can you see that? All right. I can't zoom it for some reason. Let's try it this way. Hey, there we go. All right. Bethany is on the other side of the Mount of Olives right here. Okay. So he's over here in Perea. This is maybe a day's journey. I don't know what that would look like. Maybe the better part of a day to walk uh, to Perea, wherever he was. We don't know exactly where he is in here. But he's in Perea, and he receives word that Lazarus is sick. Now, here's an interesting thing I hadn't thought of. I was reading uh, Meryl Tenney's book, John, the Gospel of Belief, and he said that uh, Lazarus needed an introduction. We don't know of him anywhere else in Scripture. Where's the only other place that you can think of where Lazarus is mentioned? Anybody? Okay, so later on in this story, okay, any other place you can think of Lazarus being mentioned? The rich man and Lazarus, and we don't even know if it's the same guy. So we don't, we don't have any other introduction. In fact, uh, Tenny points out that he has to be introduced as this is the brother of Mary and Martha, Mary particularly the one who anointed Jesus's feet. So, um, and I don't want to be insulting here, but um, to be known through a family member who's a woman is not high praise for your popularity. Are you with me on that? Not because we're misogynists or anything like that. This is just the way the culture was. You understand that? So what this meant is that Mary uh, is the more prominent one because of her engagement with Jesus and uh, uh, Martha as well, but Lazarus is less well-known, and so he's introduced, but but it also tells us here that this is the one that you love. Tells Jesus, this is the one you love. So notice, uh, he was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. And it introduces us through Martha, the one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped uh, his feet with her hair. And so the sisters send word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So Jesus receives word. The next thing I want to point out here is Jesus evaluation of this. Do you find anything interesting about his evaluation of this situation? He hears word. Let's just say it takes one day to get over there. Here's hears word that, Jesus, that uh, Lazarus is sick. Okay, what does he say? Look at verse 4. When he hears this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for the glory that God's Son may be glorified through it. It's, f- sorry, Uh, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and so he heard that Lazarus was sick. He stayed where he was two more days. Do you find anything surprising in this? What about, go ahead. He wasn't in a lot of hurry, okay? And then um, he gives us a little bit of understanding about what this is about, doesn't he? Remember any other time recently we talked about this, where there was an evaluation of why this thing was happening? John 9, the blind man. Remember the disciples' question, who sinned? This man, option A, option B. What does Jesus say? Neither option A nor option B, but this is for uh, so the works of God may be displayed. So Jesus looks at this a little bit differently. Look at verse 11. Notice anything strange there? Uh, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. What's he really saying? He's he's dead. Lazarus is dead. Uh, It's interesting to me that he should use such lightweight words to refer to death. Verse 13 and 14, look at that with me if you would. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep, and so he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead and for your sake. I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Isn't it a little strange to hear Jesus say he's dead, but I'm glad that I wasn't there. He could have cured him. Please don't let Mary and Martha hear that Jesus said that, you know, that could be really offensive to them, but there's some surprising things. And the thing that occurs to me here is Jesus looks at the circumstances of life differently than we do. He looks at them differently. And that's because he's looking at them from a different plane. The, different, the difference includes the supernatural possibilities that there could be. Where we sometimes see dead ends, Jesus sees something else. He sees possibilities. And while the majority outlook may be framed in terms of the natural or personal comfort or the momentary, he looks at things according to what will bring God glory and what will matter for eternity. And I think that's really important. Because when we become Christians, we we have to take on a different perspective in life. We have to look at things from an eternal perspective. And that can only come from God because we don't get at those things naturally. Remember, Paul says the natural man received not the things of God. We don't we don't think along that plane. We need we need God to reveal those to us and for it to really spark within our soul with his help uh, that there is there's a different value system that relates to eternity than the here and now. Remember, uh, Paul said, if there's no resurrection, uh, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's living by a different value system. We, We sometimes make sacrifices in the here and now for the sake of eternity, and we don't live according to the momentary values of our age. And so Jesus, of course, he wasn't there. They would have wished he had been there. Lazarus died. They wish that hadn't happened, obviously. But he's seeing something that most people aren't seeing. Verse four: When he heard this, Jesus said, "The sickness is not will not end in death. No, it's for the glory of God, so that the Son may be glorified through it." And of course, we remember the man born blind. And then he said in verse eleven that he's asleep. And I, this is kind of provocative because uh, in one sense, what this is saying to us is that Jesus views his going to raise Lazarus from the dead as not a hard thing, but as if he's going to wake somebody up. I think that's spectacular, don't you? That that's all it will take is, is a little nudge from Jesus to bring about, uh, bring him back to life. And so uh, Jesus does that thing; he can take death seriously, and uh, as anyone else, uh, but he because he knows what's behind it. But he can also treat it as though it were a normal night's sleep, from which somebody simply needs to be awakened. Because hard things are easy with God. And so we we see him say that he's asleep, and I I think this is also interesting because this follows John's approach to things he he'll jesus will say things or he'll use a picture and it will be a very natural picture to take one way but he has a spiritual meaning behind it do you remember he said to the woman at the well um give me something to drink if you would have asked me i would have given you water to drink and of course what's her thought you don't have a bucket are we gonna you know are, are you gonna draw water without a bucket that well is deep and jesus wasn't talking about natural water was he uh, he talks about bread coming down from heaven. And, of course, he's not talking about bread like what we would think of. He's talking about spiritual nourishment. He's talking about what he can provide. And uh, when he talks about blindness uh, in chapter 9, he's not just talking about natural blindness. He's talking about spiritual blindness. So there's something else that he uses uh, everyday things to cue us in on spiritual realities. And I think that's the genius. If it, That's a, a terrible understatement. Uh, but that's what Jesus does, and he does it well. But a lot of times if people aren't looking in the right direction, they miss what he's trying to say. And so when he says Lazarus is asleep, this has another meaning uh, for us. He's asleep. Notice, uh, again, Jesus' delay uh, in verse 6 here. It says that when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. That's not a great pastoral move to do that. Uh, And then he said to his disciples, let's go back. Okay, so he gets ready to go back to um, Bethany to see Lazarus. And, of course, we have to understand Jesus knows what's taking place here, doesn't he? He knows why the delay. Not everybody's going to understand. We're going to hear from Mary and Martha, if only you had come sooner. Both of them are going to say the same thing, which makes me think that they've talked about it. With each other, like, man, if Jesus had been here, he could have changed these circumstances, but he wasn't here. And, of course, both of them feeling the same way. I get a little more vinegar from Martha on this when I read through this story. Uh, Mary, both of them are heartbroken, but sometimes it displays itself in different ways. But Jesus' delay, and there's, this is what occurs to me, is that Jesus' timing is in accordance with his perspective he knows what he's about he knows what's best and he knows when it's best and I think this is where this comes out. Had Jesus gone earlier, it would have been another healing perhaps uh, which is impressive, but this one needed to take a particular make a particular statement um, and I think the fact that Lazarus has been in, uh, buried for four days. By the time he gets there, only improves upon the gravity of what Jesus has done. Don't you? Like if he had just recently been dead, maybe you know they've got the swoon theories <laughs> swooning out there. But uh, that might have been one of the suggestions: is Lazarus wasn't really dead. No, he's been dead four days. The sisters know, and so he waits. He waits for the proper timing and. Uh, the question is, does this justify the pain that was caused to all who loved Lazarus? Think about the the days between Lazarus being raised and when he died, the pain that Mary and Martha felt and all of his friends. And doesn't it seem a little cruel to let them go through that? I think it's safe to assume that their joy... And their bolstered faith made their momentary sorrow worthwhile, don't you? Like the joy that they felt on the other side of this, probably their sorrow went completely away. There's no bitterness in this because of the joy that came. And I see this kind of as a micro uh, example of what takes place in our lives, is that sometimes we go through some really hard things, but the joy on the other side of it will far outweigh that. Does that make sense? And so while they had to go through it, yes, that was tough. And they may have even thought, this is awfully cruel of Jesus not to come. But he knew what he was about, and he knew the joy that he would be bringing when he did come. And So it's not cruel for God at times to hold off and to wait till the 11th hour and to show up, or even beyond what we think is a possible return for him to come at that moment. He brings with him joy. So heavy as they seem the the light and the glory will outweigh and outshine them when they see what God is really doing okay so they're they're waiting on him, and I think probably um, well, I may touch on that in just a moment, but I think that it seems to me that when Jesus found out Lazarus was sick, I think he probably had already died because I think what took place here is uh, this journey from Bethany over to here, wherever they found Jesus, that might have taken a day. Okay, he waited two more days. They These messengers, when they left, they might not have known Lazarus was dead. But perhaps he died when they were on their way. They deliver the news that he's sick. Jesus knows in the spirit that Lazarus has died. He waits a couple more days, and then he makes that day journey back. When he gets there, it's been four days. It's been four days. So it seems to me that when he gets the news, Lazarus has already perished. Okay, that that's, I can't prove that, and it doesn't really matter to the story, but it seems to me that fits in a timeline. So I'd like you to notice Jesus' resolve here. Why is he in Perea again? He's going to, he's delaying the, but in the bigger picture, what sent him over there before he even knew Lazarus was sick? What was it? The, the Jews are trying to kill him. He's, he's, gonna, he's, he's trying to um, wait out for the proper time in, in the Father, and so he's, he's gone to Perea. Okay, So he's over there, and in fact, when this whole question comes up about him returning, I'd like you to notice that there are some objections to it. You can see it in verse 7. He says to his disciples, let's go back to Perea. Um, and verse eight, they said, but rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you and yet you're going back. They wanted to kill you while you were there and yet you want to go back. And if you look on here in verses, uh, the following verses, verse nine, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the daylight? And he's talking about, he's got a minister while it's a day, um, And then verse 11, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, uh, this is kind of like, we don't have to go. If he sleeps, he'll get better. And Jesus had been speaking about his death. And so he told them, Lazarus is dead, but let's go to him. And verse 16 really clues us in on how serious the situation is. We may not feel it's serious, but it's getting very serious, and it's going from a point of conflict after this to a point of crisis. Okay? Um, Merrill Tinney, in his, his book, John the Gospel of Belief, says that this is the moment of shift from the, the point of crisis or point of conflict to the point of crisis. there have been mounting opposition when Jesus has done miracle after miracle, and now we're getting to a point where something's going to shift, and they're going to go in kill mode. Okay, that's, that's getting ready to take place here. But they already feel that uh, pressure weighing on them because of Thomas's statement. Look at verse 16. Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let's also go. They're going to Bethany. Bethany's close to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's where the opposition is. Let us go that we may die with him. Here's a weird irony. Thomas is ready to go die. Remember Thomas, the one who says, I will not believe, he's the doubter. Boy, he's got courageous faith here. He's ready to go die with Jesus. Sometimes we get, you know, doubting Thomas is echoed down through the ages as being this kind of coward who's not ready to invest in the things of God. But he was one that was ready to go die. Let's go die. If he's going, let's go with him. Uh, And I think that's kind of courageous. But his perspective is wrong because... Ironically, they're not going for death; they're going for life. Do you see that? That when they get there, life is going to come out of that situation. They're going to visit a dead man, and he's going to return to life. So this is Jesus's resolve. Uh, He says, "We must go." He knows what danger there is out there. He knows that um, he's got to face opposition. I'd like you to notice um, John often uses the, the term the Jews. And uh, some people have thought uh, that that's kind of anti-Semitic. And I want to uh, encourage you to see the ridiculousness in that because Jesus is Jewish and John is Jewish and all the disciples are Jewish and everybody they know is Jewish. So it's not a, a Semitic issue. The way that John is using it is of the Jewish establishment. When he says the Jews, he means the Jewish establishment whether that's the leaders at the top or it's the greater majority of Jewish people that stand opposed to Jesus. He used it in that way, but it's not necessarily him using it in a derogatory way. He's just pointing out a particular crowd. But Jesus is resolved to go. All right, so that's the, uh, the news in Perea. So Jesus sets out, and he arrives in Bethany. Let's look at verses 17 Through 44. I'm just going to read this uh, for us and we'll try to get through this a little bit quicker because it'll take a few minutes here. Uh, On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, She went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Sorry. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and she called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, they replied. Jesus wept. Then uh, the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of the others said, uh, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more deeply moved came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But the Lord but Lord, said Martha, uh, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. For he has been in there for four days. Anybody remember what the KJV says there? By now he stinketh. He stinketh. Yes. Then Jesus said, "Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God?" This is referring back to, I think, verse four. Uh, this is for the glory of God, verse forty-one. So they uh, took the stone away, and then Jesus looked up and he said, "Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me." When he had said this, he called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. All right, so notice the arrival here in Bethany that he'd been dead for four days. He has an encounter with Mary and Martha. Uh, first with Martha, she went out to meet him and she said, if you had been here, uh, he would not have died. And so some of those questions may begin to rise. Why was Jesus not here? Why was he, why was he not there? And I think sometimes there are misunderstandings about Jesus uh, that are unfounded. And we understand that like when he doesn't come in a particular way like we think he should. We, can, uh, we sing a song sometimes that uh, you'll never, uh, how does that go? You will never let us down, I think is the, the gist of it. And uh, sometimes we do feel let down, but it's not God who's at fault for that. Many times it's our expectations that are wrong in those areas. And so he, he's never going to let us down. Uh, he will fulfill what he promises us. Sometimes the expectations are wrong. If they expected that Lazarus wouldn't die, they were going to be um, disappointed. But Jesus, what he's going to do is going to overcome that disappointment. You know, I all know the story, but um, why did uh, he not come when we asked him to come right away? We can only speculate here, but in this case... It helps us to establish a certain point. There must have been questions that arose in the minds of the sisters just as they do in ours. And in the absence of answers, we often can come up with our own answers, can't we? Like, we don't know why God did this, and so we figure it out. And um, we sense make. Remember, I think it was uh, uh, Karen Yancey who... Came one time, and she talked about that at ladies' retreat. I remember hearing about that, and it kind of provoked me a little bit in a good way uh, about how sometimes we sense make in the lack of evidence, we we draw our own conclusions. And I remember reading a book a few years ago by Oz Guinness called "God in the Dark." And one of the things that has stuck with me from that is the idea that there are times that God doesn't give us enough revelation for us to make a decision, and in those cases, it's best to suspend judgment and continue to trust him, okay? Because we know certain things about him. We know he's good. We know he's right. We know he's working on our behalf, but we can't figure out all of how the details fit, and so the best thing we can do is hold his hand and walk in the dark with him and suspend judgment until we have more information. And I think that when our eyes see, and it all makes sense, uh, we'll wonder why we drew certain conclusions to begin with. But there were these misunderstandings, and they must have had questions that arose. And in the absence of those answers, they came up with their own. Why didn't Jesus come when he heard about Lazarus? Did he not care? Well, verse 5 tells us that he did care. It answers that question. Verse 5 says, uh, Lazarus, whom you love, the one you love is sick. So we know he cares. Maybe the other question that could come up um, is Jesus too concerned about his own safety to risk coming back for Lazarus, in which case it would be self-preservation? Or you could just narrow or broaden it to selfishness. Was it selfishness that kept Jesus away? And I think verses 9 through 14 answer that question because he's ready, he's ready to go. He's ready to go. He's ready to go to Jerusalem. And the disciples are the ones saying, whoa, this is dangerous, you know. And he's still willing to go. So it's not that. There must have been some other reason. And we, we get to look behind the picture here. We get the the story shortened for us. This thing was dragged out. Maybe you feel like this is being dragged out a little bit, but this thing was dragged out over a few days. Here we can read this story in just a few moments time, and we can see that perspective narrowed, and we can see what was going on. And it's that Jesus was wanting to give testimony about who he is. In fact, in his prayer, he tells us the purpose of the miracle is so that those standing, standing looking on can see um, what he's what he's about. Okay, so we see him uh, responding to Mary or Martha, "Your brother will rise again," and she says, "I know he's going to rise at the resurrection." And Jesus says, "Here, it's not just about a particular day, and it's not just about a particular event. I'm the resurrection," and I think there's something relational that comes out of this. It's not just the academic. Uh, belief in a future day of resurrection. This is, Jesus is life. To know him is to know life. He who has the son, she who has the son has life. The one that doesn't have the son doesn't have life. It's relational. And so, I think here, we're seeing him communicate that, that that I'm the one who holds the power of life. She says, Lord, I believe. He said, do you believe this? And she says, Lord, I believe. And And we're told that this word for believe is a settled conviction. It's not like the surface things where people sometimes say, you know, I believe the creed, as if it's some intellectual assent. This is a a firm conviction that she believes Jesus is the Messiah. Well, then in verses 28 through 34 is the encounter with Mary. And again, she says to him, just as Martha did, if you had been here, He wouldn't have died. And uh, this is something Jesus knows. And um, she's mourning and crying, and Jesus sees her, and it says that he was deeply moved and troubled. And I I don't know if you've heard this before, but the word that's used here is the same word that's used of the snorting of a horse. And it's, uh, it's indignation. That Jesus isn't just like deeply moved to tears. He's angry. He's angry about this, that death has robbed Lazarus and that it has to come to this. And, of course, we understand that death is the punishment that's passed upon sin. And all people experience death. But he's hes angered at this moment as he sees the uh, response of Mary as she's weeping. And uh, he's going to respond to it, I think, with that continued anger because it says, Again, when he comes to the tomb that he 's deeply moved, same words that are used there he 's moved and he 's troubled okay so here I see Jesus taking both seriously and lightly death. Um, this is something that has been stirring in me is that when it comes to the the things of life there 's kind of this paradox, for example um I don't know of any other religion out there that can take as seriously as Christianity what sin is, okay? And I don't know of any other religion out there that can also proclaim how that sin can be forgiven, okay? It takes it both seriously, and it also gives us the freedom to be forgiven. And here, while death is very serious and the Lord of life, is groaning and angry at this, and even we hear uh, Jesus weeping at this. Uh, in a moment, he's going to say some words, and he's going to reverse the the death of his friend Lazarus. And I think that's phenomenal. You see him take it very seriously, but he also, because of his power, is lord over those circumstances. He weeps. There's mixed opinions regarding Jesus as he stands at the tomb of Lazarus or prepares to go to the tomb. Verse 35, as he, as he weeps, uh, some people say, see how he loved. John is a master of pulling this out. See how he loved. Uh, and then others um, were questioning in their minds, if he had been here, the one who opened the eyes of the blind could have kept him from dying. Do you see the mixed response? Some saying, They're seeing the good side, see how he loved, and others seeing the negative side. Like, why was he not here? He could have kept him from dying. And they still don't see the possibilities. If you've ever been in a situation where you're the only one who believes, you're not alone. Jesus knows that. He knows that better than anybody. Nobody's been on the scene like Jesus where he believes and has a completely different perspective from everybody around him. Verse 38 through 44, he arrives at the tomb. Jesus was once again moved, verse 38. And then he commands in verse 39a to remove the stone. And Martha objects, it's been four days, he stinks by now. What an awful thing to have to say about your relative, right? They don't know the what's getting ready to take place here. But by now, uh, he stinks is the, the thought. And I wanted to show you a picture here because Jesus, as he um, prays the prayer, he, uh, Martha objects and then he says, this is for the glory of God in verse 40. Um, look at what it says there. Verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? You'll see the glory of God. And so he responds to her with that. And then um, he prays. Verse 41 and 42, notice that uh, he starts with thanksgiving for the answer before it's even happened. Do you ever notice that? That's faith. I mean, he's got great faith and is confident God's going to do this. And so thank you, uh, Father, that you've heard me. And I know that you always hear me. And then uh, he tells us the purpose for which this miracle and this prayer is being prayed, uh, that they may uh, believe that you have sent me. So he prays the prayer, of the purpose of the miracle, and then he commands Lazarus to come, to come out. Verse 43. In a loud voice, he cries out, Lazarus, come out. And it says, the dead man, notice it doesn't call him Lazarus. This is for the sake of emphasis. The dead man came out. His hands and his feet were wrapped with strips of linen. Now, you might know this. I'm going to skip past that. If, uh, as I was studying this, I found out that the way they wrapped corpses was from the shoulders down to the feet, and then there would be a head covering. And so if Lazarus came out, he didn't come out by walking out. Are you with me? He didn't come out by walking out. And I think it's it's Merrill Tinney says that uh, the only explanation for this appearance at the door of the tomb is that the power that galvanized him into life brought him forth to the door. I think that's awesome don't you? That uh, yeah not only is he alive they move the door but Lazarus gets to a certain point and then of course then the practical has to take over and I think there's something even in that that and, and You can see this in a couple other instances, that when the miracle happens, after the miracle, you have to pick up and do practical things. Are you with me? Like take the the grave clothes off or loose him so that he can walk uh, from this point. Peter, when he's in prison, the angel opens the door, opens another door, but he comes to a point where Peter's got to start opening doors for himself. And uh, I see here Lazarus, he comes out, he's bound, uh, but I think by the power of God, He's brought to a place where uh, visibly something in the the likeness of resurrection has taken place. But we shouldn't exactly categorize this as a resurrection. This is him rising from the dead. And I want to tell you why. Uh, He's not raised to immortality. Lazarus is going to die again. He certainly is going to die again. So this isn't Jesus like when he's raised. He's raised in a... Uh, the prototype of our resurrected bodies. That's how I understand it, that he is the prototype. He's the first fruits from beyond the dead. Lazarus was not raised that way. What Jesus did is he he reversed the effects of death in him and brought him back to life. But he brought him back to a mortal body. Okay? Are you with me on that? It's necessary that we make the distinction because Jesus is the first resurrection of his kind. Okay? That's important. So what, what's happened with Lazarus is a reversal of things taking place. And it, it always makes me laugh because later on, and, and Susie pointed this out, the Jews are going to threaten Lazarus that they're going to, they want to kill him. They're going to plot to kill Lazarus. It's like, he's, I've been there, done that. It doesn't intimidate me at all because <laughs> he's already been down that road uh, before. But uh, this is something different than resurrection, what Jesus did was he reversed the effects of decay, and he undid the sickness, and he restored life. And so that serves as a sign because in a in a similar way, it's still a victory over death. Now it's a temporary battle win, but that battle win points to a deeper significance that Jesus is Lord of life and He's Lord over death. Okay, the the greater miracle is going to come later when Jesus rises from the dead. I take. Uh, I lay down my life and I take it up again. I have the power to lay down my life and I have the power to take it up again. He's going to be raised from the dead. All right. Yes. Sure. Yes. It would be like a Lazarus type raising from the dead. The resurrection is something we'll we'll experience later where we'll have resurrected bodies. And I think... I don't, I don't know how by how you, how you were taught, but this was never quite emphasized, I think, the way that it should be, that we will have resurrected bodies and we will live in a spiritual material universe similar to this, a new heavens and a new earth. It's not going to be floating on the clouds and playing harps. There's going to be tangible stuff to us in our resurrected bodies. I I highly doubt it. I don't think we need wings. So, but that's my opinion. You can, if you can find it in Scripture, then I'll change my opinion on that. But I don't see any place we have wings. Uh, if Jesus's body is the prototype of the resurrected body, it's going to look something like ours, but be transformed in a way that's going to show glory. Okay. All right. Uh, let's get, go into this final section here and talk about the plot in Jerusalem. You would think that a miracle like this would cause everybody to believe. And we often think that if people just had enough evidence seen as believing, they'll believe Jesus. But that's not always the case. Sometimes there's evidence. I know growing up in church, I had enough evidence. I believe this was all true. But there was something in me that didn't want to lay down my weapons and surrender. Can anybody relate to that? Like, you're convinced this is true. There are kids out there that grow up in church that believe it's true, but they will not surrender their right to live their way. They don't want to do that yet. And maybe it'll take a moment where uh, God really has to shake them for that to happen. But there's a mixed response. You would think that if Jesus raised the dead, just like when Elijah calls down fire from heaven, he thinks everybody's going to be convinced, even Jezebel. Well, they're not. Even even if they're convinced, they're not ready to change. And so is the case here. Like other signs, the miracle was met with belief and unbelief. You can see that in verse 45 and following. Let's read these final verses here. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, what are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is the man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and will take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not uh, realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And this, is catch this, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. and Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim where he stayed with his disciples. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for the ceremonial cleansings before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus and As they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it, so they might arrest him. This is interesting, a mixed response. And so they have a meeting. The the Jewish leadership has a meeting regarding the Jesus problem. Um, verses forty-seven through fifty-three. Ten, he says. Finally, the effects of the miracle prompted the rulers to take summary action against Jesus, lest his popularity should be so great that their prominence and power should be eclipsed. So it was undeniable that he performed many signs. They said they said as much in verse forty-seven. And then in verse forty-eight, they were begin to be afraid of Roman. Retaliation. What's going to happen if people follow him as Messiah and declare him as king, which they already have in um, the feeding of the five thousand? They wanted to take him and make him king by force. What's going to happen in that case? And so there were there was fear that the Romans would retaliate and take away the temple, take away the nation. They definitely didn't believe Jesus was capable of handling that. So they came up with a sacrificial solution, verse 49 through 52, uh, that one man should die for the nation. They don't realize how, how true what they said really was. They didn't realize the extent to which uh, this was going to be true. And what really baffles me is that Caiaphas, who is standing against Jesus in this, would prophesy. Aren't you amazed by that? Sometimes we have our nice, nice neat categories like you know these are the people that can do real ministry and then people who we we write people outside of that. And like S- Samson, anybody troubled by Samson that he should be used by the Holy Spirit to uh, berserk or whatever he did. Um I'm troubled by that. Like he's not holy. And then we have Caiaphas who's prophesying. We have Saul who prophesies after he's been rejected. Those are they're not nice, neat categories. God can use whoever he wants. And we see that in Caiaphas that he prophesies, man, and he prophesies accurately and he prophesies the gospel. He really does. I don't know that he, he saw to the extent that he... he. I think he imagined that if Jesus got out of the picture, all of Israel would unite around whatever was going on at the moment, their national identity. that Get this troublemaker out of the way, and then the divider can get out of the way, and we can be united as a people. I think that's what they had in mind. Uh, but sometimes people speak better than they know. And I think Caiaphas did in this in this circumstance, and, and others have done so as well. Um, but it, it is strange that he would do that. So they began plotting to take his life in verse 53. Something strange happens as a result of that. we got three minutes, and we're going to be done on time. I really believe it. All right. Jesus uh, withdraws. They plot to take his life. They're looking for opportunity to do this. And Jesus withdraws, and this may may be kind of interesting. I don't know what's intended by this, but that this little town Ephraim should be mentioned uh, is kind of an interesting thing because do you know what Ephraim was known for? Not the tribe, not the territory, but this particular city. Anybody know what it was known for in the Old Testament? I didn't know this before I was studying for this, but this is where Absalom was with his men and they were shearing sheep in preparation for the festival. I think in 2 Samuel 13, I think is the reference. And uh, he plotted to have his father send his brother Ammon, and that's where he killed. He had his men jump upon and kill Ammon. And I see some interesting parallels. Why did Jesus flee to this particular city? It might have been in Samaritan territory. Um, Why would he flee there? Is he connecting with this symbolic significance of a son of David being killed by his own brothers? Is that the reason? Is it connected to the sheep before the shears kind of thinking? Is it completely unconnected? I don't know. But I think it's interesting that John, who fails to mention other things, would call out by name a particular village. So, it's worth considering. But he withdraws there... Um, and, of course, Jesus is not like Ammon. Ammon was guilty of a terrible crime. But perhaps there's some kind of symbolism he's drawing upon there. And they search for Jesus at the Passover. And the reason, the way they would do this is that there were some pools, like, uh, remember the, the man who was lame? He was waiting for somebody to bring him to the pool. Those pools would have been used for ceremonial washings around the time of Passover. And so they're probably looking maybe from some kind of pinnacle of the temple, down upon those pools, waiting for Jesus to come and wash, and they're going to take him captive. Well, he's going to come right into those temples, into that temple, isn't he, and teach and preach and cleanse this whole time right around the Passover. It's coming, and it's coming very soon. Ironically, the raising of Lazarus was the final straw which would uh, set his opponents to kill him, Uh, We sometimes make the mistake of thinking that people lack evidence, but sometimes um, usually they don't lack the evidence. There's a moral choice which is involved in believing. And that choice comes from this, whether we would like to do it our way or whether we're willing to surrender to God's way and let Jesus be king. Many people are convinced of the truth of Christ, but They won't surrender, and when push comes to shove, they fight for their own kingdom and will, in the end, be willing to crucify to have their own throne. But if the cross has shown us anything, it's that God loves in spite of all of that, and if the resurrection has shown us anything, it's that he can't be beat. God can't be beat. Christ can't be beat. He is the king, and he can't be beat. And so the best response is to lay down our hammers, And let Christ be Lord of life. And there is, in the end, uh, no life apart from him. And I think that's what this is about. John wants us to believe Jesus is the Lord of life. And I think he would have us to stop fighting and let him be Lord. Don't you? Let's believe he's done enough to convince us. Let's believe in him. Hey, we're right on time. Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your attention tonight. Let's have a word of prayer. Let's thank the Lord that he's promised us life and that whatever four days, if we could use the four days as a metaphor for our troubling times, if we could just think about that, whatever we're experiencing, that there is joy on the other side of that because of what he's done. Lord, we thank you that you've promised life to all who trust in you and believe in you. We pray that you help us to put our confidence fully in you, to walk with you, to look to you. Um I pray that as you've given us evidence of your greatness, that you wouldn't allow the um, that desire, that sinful desire within us to push you to the margins. And, um, I pray, Lord, that you help us to surrender our thrones to you and let you be king. We pray to believe fully in you and experience life as you give it. In Jesus' name we pray.